Uh, we're in a brand new series that we started last week. It is entitled Common People, Uncommon God. And we're looking at the life of Simon Peter. And Simon Peter was like just this common person, and he was much like us. What draws us a lot of times to the life of Simon Peter is not all of his accomplishments, even though they were great. But what draws us to Simon Peter is this issue that he was a lot like us. And we started looking at this last week, that he had a lot, a lot of what was I thinking moments. He had a lot of moments in his life when he just thought, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why didn't I, th- why didn't I understand that that was going to cause problems or consequences in my life? It's something that we can all relate to, right? And so when you look at Simon Peter's life, you realize that he was a very common person, but he lived a very uncommon life when he came into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that he lived with this radical abandonment and God changed his entire life. Now, we'll pick up the story, and today we're going to look at the subject of just an uncommon confession. It's probably the most important confession that Simon Peter made. It's the most important confession that we ourselves will make in life. And so Jesus takes the disciples, and he takes them to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And it's there that Jesus began to ask them a series of questions. I don't know if you've known this or or even thought about this, but there's something about a well-thought-out question that can stimulate conversation. Not a question that just, just gets a yes-no answer, but a question that causes someone to look at their values and their ethics and their principles and everything else. See, we, we understood this, and, and our kids were young. We did a lot of vacations where we would just drive. And, and so when you deal with a lot of people all the time, it was just kind of nice on vacation just to be in a car with your family and just drive. And so we, we did vacations, drove to California and to the East Coast and down into Mexico and to Texas back and forth and all over Colorado. And so to pass the time and to develop conversation within the family, there's a book that came out a number of years ago called the Book of Questions. And so we would read these questions, and the kids hated them at that time. You know how that is. And they hated them at that time, but now they look back on it, some of their fondest memories of in the car asking and going through these questions. So let me just give you some of these questions. It just kind of... promotes conversation, much like Jesus did with the disciples. Here's one. If you could spend one year in perfect happiness, but afterwards would remember nothing of the experience, would you do so? If not, why not? Here's another one that we looked at a lot as a family. You discover your wonderful one-year-old child because of a mix-up at the hospital is not yours. Would you want to exchange the child to try to correct the mistake. There's something about a question that can stimulate conversation. Here's another one. While parking late at night, you slightly scrape the side of a Porsche. You're You're certain no one else is aware of what has happened. The damage is minor and you would and would not be covered by insurance. Would you leave a note I know this. If someone scraps, uh, scrapes the side of a 10-year-old truck, they don't leave a note. But I'm over it. So uh, <laughs> I think. Here's another one. If you're at a friend's house for Thanksgiving dinner and, fi- and you find a dead cockroach in your salad, what would you do? I mean, I mean, there's, I mean, questions, there's something about questions and how people answer that. Some of you are already like discussing it and trying to figure it out. So what do you value most in a relationship? So here's the last one that's caused a lot of controversy in all of our services. So uh, here it is. 
Would $50,000 be enough money to induce you to take a loyal, healthy pet to the vet and put it to sleep? Okay. So how many of you would say, doggone? I mean, (laughs) raise your hands. I mean, if you would say like, doggone. (laughs) Yeah. How many of you would say, no, it's not enough? Yeah, but you can understand a, a properly worded question, how it can, can challenge you at your, your values and your principles and, and your ethics. I mean, now this is just an ADD moment. This isn't even a part of the talk, so just forgive me, but I have a pastor friend that in his church, he had a man that was terminally ill and had like a week to live, and he went to his house, and he planned out the guy's funeral, and the guy had this poodle that was about three years old, and it was a deeply loved dog. And so, you know, he's there, and they went through the, how the, the, the funeral was going to be done, and he, and he is a deacon in the church and been in the church forever. And a week later, the guy passes away. And so my friend goes to the house to, you know, with the wife and to comfort her and to make final arrangements for the funeral. And the wife looks at him and says, oh, by the way, something you don't know about Harold. Harold's one of Harold's last dying dreams was that he would be buried with his poodle. So I'm going, to take, I'm going to take the dog to the vet tomorrow and have it put down so the dog can be buried with Harold. So that's just kind of some of the stuff we deal with. Just thought I'd open up that to you. It has like nothing to do with the sermon. But anyway, I hope you feel blessed. So, but anyway, <laughs> so back to the sermon. What, what, what has brought us here today is this issue of, of a question. That you could take a book of questions or you can take a question and you can ask it to a group of people and it will cause deep conversation, especially a question that does not demand a yes, no, but it demands something more than that to where your ethics and your principles and, and who you are as a person is, is kind of fleshed out in it. Now listen, today Jesus is going to take the disciples to Caesarea Philippi and he's going to ask them some questions and I'm just going to tell you, I'm... It's going to demand a response from every one of us. See, these are some of the most penetrating questions that Jesus asked in his ministry. And listen, Jesus was one of the, I mean, he could ask some questions that just would cut people to the core. And it forced them to flesh out what they believe and and why. See, at the heart of this, when Jesus took them to Caesarea Philippi, he asked them, who do you say I am? I mean, who do you say I am? Because how you and I determine or how you and I answer that question determines everything about our life. It not only determines our eternal, where we're going to live for our eternity and heaven, but it also determines how we'll live. I mean, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, puts their trust in him, changes their life because of them. Because, see, the New Testament knows nothing of intellectual belief. The New Testament knows nothing of someone that comes into a relationship with him and it doesn't radically change their life. That whoever shall believe in him, put their trust in him, shall have eternal life. See, see it not only believe, it not only determines where you and I will spend eternity, but it also determines how we'll live. And how we'll make decisions in our life. You see, there's a lot of people that may acknowledge God, but they don't place God in his rightful place in their life and understand the lordship of Christ and they follow him. And in our world, we're living in a time where our world has lost its moral compass and 
There are no longer any moral absolutes. And you know what? If you have moral absolutes, especially if they're biblical uh, absolutes, then people will say you're intolerant and you have hate. The answer to this question, who is Jesus, not only determines where we'll spend eternity and not only determines our life, but it determines our doctrinal stance. It determines our doctrine in our life. After all, how, how can you have correct doctrine in your life? How can you believe the correct things about Jesus if you don't know who he is? That's why Jesus, right before he takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, he begins talking to them about who he is. And he started warning them about false prophets because, see, if, if you don't know who he is, what Jesus warned is, then false prophets, false religions will lead you astray. That's why Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.15, says, Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. In other words, everybody may see how you mature in the faith. Listen, again, let me just tell you, the New Testament knows nothing of someone that comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ and they don't progress in the faith and they don't mature and they don't develop. It knows nothing of someone that just says intellectually, I believe in him, but it's not going to change my life. And it's not going to change the way I act, and it's not going to change the way I live. And so he says, so watch your life and your doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, and he's saying eternity hangs in the balance. And you will save both yourselves and your hearers. And we live in a time when our world and our country is eroding away because it's standing on the shifting sand of human philosophy and situational ethics. So Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. This is a huge event in their life, and it's a huge event in our life. A little bit about Caesarea Philippi is this. is a place of known for false worship. It's a place of known of, of idols. In fact, is Caesarea Philippi had all of these wooden uh, images of, of idols and false gods all around. And so Jesus is walking with his disciples, and they probably begin to discuss about these idols, and Jesus overheard them and says, we, we have a teaching moment. And so in the, in the midst of these idols, Jesus asks them three questions that I'm going to ask you this morning. And, and I, I just got to tell you, just be open and honest with you this morning, is I am burdened for our church, and I am burdened for some of you that this may be the morning and this may be the time that you're going to have to settle for yourself. What do you believe and why? Because everything hangs in the balance. There's something about a well-placed question, a well-thought-out question that causes each one of us to figure out and to, for ourselves to decide what we believe and why. So Jesus takes the disciples and he's around all these false idols and everything and he looks at them and he says, what do they say? It was the first question that he asked them, and it was so penetrating to us, and it can be so penetrating to us, and he is so penetrating to them, and can be penetrating to us as well. And he looked at them and says, "What do they say? Watch this. And who is the they? The they is the word." And so here's what he says: So when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, this is Matthew chapter 16, verse um, 13. He asked the the disciples, "Who do people say the Son of Man is?" And who do they say? What, what does the world say about me? Now, this wasn't a multiple-choice question, but they treated it like a multiple-choice question. 
And what Jesus is saying is, what does the world say about me? And you know what you're going to learn this morning? You're going to learn that what the world was saying about Jesus there in biblical times is the same thing that the world is saying about Jesus today. It hasn't changed. I mean, is not anything new? This happened in Jesus' time, and guess what? This has happened in our time. He said, so who, who do they say? Who does the world say I am? And so the guys were kind of nervous because, you know, about answering questions sometimes, it's difficult, and sometimes it's threatening to say what you really believe or maybe what you've really heard. So they thought they would give Jesus the good news. Like, not like, he, I mean, he already knew what they were saying about him, but they didn't want to tell him. So they gave him the good news. They only told him the good things people were saying about him. And they said, oh, well, that's, that's easy, they replied. Uh, you know what? Some say you're, you're John the Baptist. And others, you know what they're saying? They're saying, you may be Elijah. And still others are saying, you know what? You're Jeremiah. And you know what? There's others, and there's others that are saying, you're just, man, you're just like, you're like one of the prophets. And so they were trying to help him understand. They're trying to answer the question, but they were giving him the good news. You see, that was what some people were saying about him. But others were saying the religious people, the church, they were saying some horrendous things about Jesus. That he was a glutton, and he was a drunkard, and he was a thief, and he was a friend of sinners. He was blaspheming God because he was claiming to, he was claiming to be God. You see, in their day, just like in our day, there were people that said that he was a good man. He was like one of the prophets. He was like John the Baptist. He was like, like Jeremiah. In other words, he was a good man. He was a moral man. Uh, he's a good, I mean, he was a, a good teacher. I mean, he was a, a prophet. And all of these things and all of these definitions may be fine and well, but they're all so inadequate because Jesus never claimed to be any of those. Not one of them. I mean, people are saying the same thing about Christ today. They're saying that he's a good person, he was a good teacher, and he had a great movement, and he was loving, and he was accepting, and all of this other stuff. And But they say, you know what? He wasn't the only way. I mean, I, I know what he claimed. I know he claimed that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. But he is just a way. See, the world is saying that Jesus Christ was just one of the ways to God. Because after all, all religions, what the world will tell you, all religions follow the same God. All religions pray to the same God. And so he is not the only way. Is that he is a way. You see, when you look at this, you find that the world's opinion of Jesus really hasn't changed from biblical times. And so Jesus asks, well, what do they say? What does the world say? Listen, let me tell you something. Sometimes the easiest thing to do in the world is just to repeat something that someone else has said. Right? And Jesus didn't let them get away with that. Sometimes it's easy just to repeat the, the church answers, whether it's what you've heard a preacher say, whether it's what you've heard a wife say, what you've heard a husband say, what you've heard a friend say. And sometimes the easiest thing to do in life is just to repeat what you've heard someone else say. But Jesus wasn't going to allow them to get away with that. And listen, it would have been great difficulty for them 
is when Jesus answers, asks the second question. Here's the second question. Well, who do you say I am? He said, who do they say I am? And then he says, you're not going to get away with this. I need to know who you say I am. And listen, there'd be great problem for the disciples if they had answered this second question and their definition for who God is is the same definition of who the world's definition of who God is. You're in great trouble this morning. If your definition of God, if your belief in God is really the same as the word, as the world. He was just a good person. He was just a moral person. He was a good teacher. He had a great movement. He was forgiving. He was loving. All of those other things. He's not the way. He's a way. Listen, let me tell you something. It would have ended differently for the disciples if they had answered the second question with the same definition as the world does. And you this morning, if your definition for who God is is the same as the world, then you're in grave danger spiritually. And so Jesus looked at them and says, well, I need to know. I mean, we need to settle this right now. I need to know, who do you? Who do you say I am? Uh, Verse 15 out of Matthew chapter 16, he says, "Well, well, what about you? You know their heart rate had to pick up at this point. And what about you? I know that's what they say. And I know that's what the world says. But let me ask you, who do you say? Who do you say I am? And so Simon Peter, I mean, we've been looking at his life, and we know this, that Simon Peter didn't, he didn't answer the clue phone very, uh, very often, right? But the clue phone is ringing, and it's for him. And Simon Peter says, I got this one. And he's probably sitting on the edge of his seat and raising one hand, both hands, pick me, pick me, pick me. I know this. And so Simon Peter becomes the spokesperson for the group because Simon Peter believes that he knows the answer, and he does know the answer to this question. And so he's like, pick me, pick me in verse 16. So here's what Simon Peter says. He says, so Simon Peter answered, and watch this. Man, you are the Christ. In other words, you are the Messiah. You are God incarnate. And then he goes on, and, and we don't understand this in the English, but in the Greek, this is so deep what, what Simon Peter was saying. fact is, in my Bible, I've taken that word living and circled it and highlighted it and starred it and everything else, so I never forget this. So Simon Peter says, you are not only the Christ, but you are the son of the living God. See, in Jewish culture, that was the way that they would distinguish between Yahweh, God, and dead, worthless idols. Simon Peter was saying, you're not like all these wooden idols in Caesarea Philippi that are mute and dead and powerless. You are Yahweh. You are God. You are the living God. Simon Peter made this confession and Simon Peter made this declaration that was, guess what? That was different than the world. It was totally different than what the world was saying. It was totally different than easy believism that just everybody goes to heaven and you just have to be a good person. You just have to be moral. You just have to do more good things than bad things. And guess what? You're in. And Simon Peter looked at him and made this confession. And how was he able to do that? I mean, how was he able to answer that question? Say, you're the Messiah. Man, you're the living God. It's because Jesus has been revealing himself to him. Scripture teaches that he wants everyone to be saved. 
And he reveals himself to us, whether it's through his word, whether it's through the local church, whether it's through a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife or people that you work with. Then Simon Peter had heard Jesus say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before Abraham, I, I am. Heard him say the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. and He had witnessed the miracles of Jesus right before this. Simon Peter had seen the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. Oh, and he just didn't watch. He was a part of it. Where he took some bread and some fish to Jesus along with the other disciples and said they're hungry. And Jesus looked at him and says, okay, you feed them. And Jesus broke it and blessed it. And he told Simon Peter and the others, now you go. And you hand the bread out. Simon Peter personally witnessed the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000. He had seen Jesus calm storms with his voice. He had seen him walk on water. He had seen him heal people. And See, Simon Peter could make this declaration. Watch this. this is what script... Simon Peter could make this declaration because he personally knew him. If your definition of who he is is the same definition as the world, then you do not personally know him. See, Simon Peter could make this declaration because he had a relationship with him. And he just didn't know some facts about him. He personally knew him. And it radically changed his life. He's just a common person. And next week we're going to go walk through Simon Peter's greatest regret in his life. But he knew him. What's so interesting is Jesus affirmed him. He says, Jesus replied, verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for what you just said, this confession, was not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus endorsed Simon Peter's confession, but he also agreed with him and says, we have a, we have a relationship, and Simon Peter was known for being excited, and Simon Peter was known for saying things that he shouldn't have said. And then Jesus was known looking at Simon Peter and saying, you shouldn't have said that. That was over the top. I mean, right? I mean, we've, we've seen those. We've seen those experiences with Jesus. And Simon Peter did not look, or Jesus did not look at Simon Peter and says, you know, Simon, I'm sorry. I mean, boy, I'm really impressed that you believe that I'm God, and I'm really impressed that you think I'm the Messiah, and I... I really am impressed that you believe all that, but I, Jesus didn't tell him, but I'm not any of those things. Jesus said, you know, Simon, you're right. I am the Messiah. I am God incarnate. I am the living God, and I have the power to heal you. See, when you study the life of Jesus, you realize that Jesus hasn't left any of those options open for us. That he was a good man and that he was a prophet and that he was a teacher. He never claimed to be any of those things. He claimed to be God and he claimed to be the Messiah. The last question is this. He, he, he took them through a series of questions and he says, who do they say I am? And then he says, who do you say I am? 
And then now he asked another question. It was in the form of a statement, but it's still a question. And he asked him this, and how have I been revealing myself to you? The fact is, he asked us that today. How has God revealed himself to you? See, I told you when we started this journey together this morning, it's going to force a response. It's going to demand a response for each one of us. It may be a reaffirmation of a decision that we made, a confession that we made, or it may cause us to make a confession for the very first time this morning. Verse 17, so Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, words, Simon, the the miracles that I've been doing, the teaching that I've been doing, the, the claims that I've been making, this has been done to reveal to you that I am God. I am the living God. I'm God in the flesh. And then the first thing that Jesus begins to do is talk about the local church. This is the first reference of the local church. And so, verse 18, and so let's just walk through this. And he says, I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now listen, let's just, this morning we just need to understand the scripture, and I just want to be really clear that we have a different understanding of these verses than Roman Catholics. Now Roman Catholics, when they come to this verse, will tell you that Simon Peter was the first pope. And this was Jesus installing him as the first pope, and then, but through apostolic secession, it has continued unto this day. Now listen, we have a different belief, and we have a different view of that. If you understand Hebrew, you can under, or you understand the Greek, you can understand what Jesus was saying. But you know what? I believe when you look at these verses, you just need to understand English, and it's pretty clear. You see, in the Greek, watch this, he used two different words, two different Greek words, um, uh, and, uh, and it was really a play on words. And so here's the verse again. He says, so I tell you that you are Peter, and the Greek word that he used was petros, which means smaller rock. And he says, so you are the smaller rock. I'm going to name you Peter. You are petros, which means smaller rock. And then he goes on, and he says, and on this rock, petra, which means boulder. And so I think if we were there that day, we could see the hand motions of Jesus, that Jesus would say, well, well, Simon, you're right and you're correct. I am the living God. And on your confession, I will build my church. On the boulder of truth, you are Petros, the smaller rock, but on this larger rock, this boulder of truth, that I am the Messiah, that I am the living God, I will build my church. I mean, if you just look at it in, in, in English, you realize that it was Jesus was claiming and Jesus was saying, you know what, who will build the church? I'll build the church. Fact is, when you look at the history of the local church in the New Testament, you find all the way through the book of, of Acts, Simon Peter becomes less and less influential of the church. Fact is, James becomes more influential. It was in First Peter that Simon Peter wrote when he wrote First Peter, and he says, you know who the cornerstone of the church is? Not man. Not me. Simon Peter himself said, you want to know who the cornerstone of the church is? His name is Jesus. See, the danger that we get into when we think it is man-made, and it is man-sustained, and it is about a man, is we will hold tradition over Scripture. And we'll get into all kinds of trouble. And he said, Simon Peter said, that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. First Corinthians 3.11, Paul's writing, For no one can lay any foundation other than one already laid. So who's the foundation? Jesus Christ. And he says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock 
Who will build the church? Who is the cornerstone of the church? Who is the church founded on? And I will build my church. Listen, let me tell you something. Scripture teaches right now Jesus Christ is building the church. Shouldn't we be about building what he is building? About, building? Shouldn't his, our priority be his priority? See, we look at the local church and we're so flippant about the local church to where it really and truly has really no priority in our life. It just kind of gets our leftovers. It's just kind of down on the priority list that, that once we do all of our stuff and once we do all of our priorities, then we'll find time to serve or then we'll find time for church. But you find that his highest priority right now is I will build the church. I mean, all we're doing... All we're doing is facilitating the work of Christ. And he is the foundation. He is the cornerstone of the church. And here's the crazy thing about this, this verse that I have never seen until this last week. And I've just like pondered it all week. Nowhere else in scripture, he says, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Do you realize this is the only thing the church is the only thing that he says that the gates of Hades will not prevail against him. I mean, we, we know this, right? The gates of Hades can prevail against a country. The gates of Hades can prevail against your family. The gates of Hades can prevail against your health. I mean, we looked at that in the series on Job and suffering. The gates of Hades can prevail against your income and your profession and your economy and your... I mean, we know that, right? Some of us have lived through that. I mean, we've seen. We've seen our family under attack. We've seen our country or whatever. And he says... I'll build my church. In liberal, liberalism, the government, consumerism, easy believism, false prophets, nothing will destroy my church. Man, the church has been under attack for thousands upon thousands of years and it's been persecuted, and the church still stands. No empire has lasted thousands of years. Every empire has come and gone. And the same will be true of America. But his church, I mean, Jesus has said that, that his word will last forever. Verse 19, and so he looks at Simon Peter and says, and I give you the keys of heaven and uh, keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so what does this mean? There's all kinds of theologies and there's all kinds of doctrines around this verse. And some people make this verse so easy. And listen, I'm telling you, this verse is just so easy to understand. And we'll just unpack this together so that we understand. And we don't have to come up with weird theologies and weird doctrine. And this is what he says. He says, I'll give you the keys of, uh, of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So what is he talking about here? Well, what's the purpose of a key? And the purpose of a key is to unlock the door, right? It's to unlock a door and let people in. Simon Peter preached the first uh, uh, gospel message there at Pentecost, and he unlocked the door. It was Pentecost for the Jews, and, uh, and the Jews came into the church, and 3,000 were saved in one day. And in Jerusalem, that church became 20,000 in number. It was a megachurch. 
And then in Acts chapter 10, uh, Simon Peter again took the key and unlocked the, 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 the door to let the Gentiles, to let non-Jews in, people like us. That's what he's saying here. See, Simon Peter was bold in confessing Christ. He confessed Christ for the, for the first time with him in Caesarea Philippi. And then he did it public there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And again in Acts chapter 10 to much criticism. And listen, let me tell you something. In the day that we live in, Christians need to be bold in confessing Christ. And so many Christians are afraid to confess Christ because they're afraid to be labeled as intolerant or hateful or anything else. And yesterday, uh, Neil Armstrong passed away. And like many of you that are about my age, and um, I still remember in, in July and, uh, when we stayed up late, you know, black and white TV, and we adjusted the rabbit ears. And, and you know, so, some of you younger people, you, won't, you don't know what rabbit ears are. You're like, what? Uh, you know, ask your mom, ask your dad. I don't have time right now. You know, and the, the screen scrolling and trying to get the snow out. Remember when we'd take aluminum foil and put it on the antenna so we'd get better reception, you know? And so, I mean, those are just fun days. And I remember standing up, staying up late. We got to stay up past our bedtime. And we were all wondering what it was going to be like when they stepped on the moon for the very first time. But you know what's not reported? Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong were devout believers. Buzz Aldrin was an elder in his church. And Buzz Aldrin was so convicted that God is the creator of all that he wanted to take communion on the moon. So he went to his pastor and he talked it through with his pastor and he worked it out with NASA. And he took the bread and wine and a chalice. And, and the first thing that they did after moments of landing on the moon was take communion. It was supposed to be nationally recorded and televised. But they had a lady in Texas, Madeline Murray O'Hare, an atheist. And at that time, she was trying to destroy the church, and the churches lived on. And NASA and the government didn't want a lawsuit, and they didn't want all the problems, so they didn't publicize it. After a few moments of landing on the moon, Buzz Aldrin took the wine and took the bread it's kind of amazing thing to think about that the first liquid that was poured and drank the first food that was eaten on the moon were the elements the first words that were really spoken on the moon came out of the gospel of John because they were bold in their witness See, the New Testament knows nothing as someone that confesses Christ and their life doesn't change. I mean, when you have good news, you cannot help but share it, right? I mean, when you have good news, you've got to, like, tell everybody. It's like when, when we had our grandson, Gavin, and uh, he was born, and Karen and I got to come into the room, and you, many of you know the story, and he was rushed off to ICU. It was a difficult moment, and 
But we were still, yeah, we were so excited, even though praying and that whole deal. And I got out my cell phone. Karen has her cell phone. And, and I'm about ready to, to send out, you know, tweets that Gavin and pictures and all this other stuff. And Karen's about ready to text her friends and this stuff. And I still remember Brittany looked over and said, Mom, Dad, put the cell phone down now. It's kind of like role reversal. She's like, you know what? We get to tell people first. It's not right. And, and so I'm like, oh. How about the several people I've already told? But I didn't tell her. <laughs> My bad. I, you, we should have gone through this before this experience. And so she's like, yeah, I mean, you, those of you that are grandparents, you know. I mean, you know, your kids. Anyway, well, but, so you just you cannot help but share. And so, you know, we could not wait for her to give us the green light to say, you know what? Share. Tell anyone. We've told everybody. And so, so that next morning, we were headed back up to the hospital. The kids were hungry, so we stopped at Subway to get breakfast for everybody before we, and take it to the hospital. You know what? We told everybody in Subway. Everybody in Subway knew his name and how much he weighed, how long, you know, all the specs and stuff. You know, to where the next morning when we went back in there for breakfast again, we're like family. They're asking us, hey, how's Gavin? Well, he's awesome. He got out of ICU and this whole deal. I mean, I even try to figure out how to work Gavin into every sermon that I preach. Because when you have good news, you cannot help but share it. And believers have this wonderful news. Are you sharing it? You can change the eternal destiny of your friends and your family. We live in a lost and dying world. Christians are no longer bold in their witness because they're afraid that they'll be labeled as intolerant and difficult. And the reason that people get offended is that it affronts their pride. Jesus is the one. He said, love your enemies and do good to them. And we say, that's not true, Lord. We live in a dog-eat-dog world. And if I don't demand my rights, if I don't pay back wrong for wrong, they'll run over me. Your test of your Christianity is how you treat others around you, your boss, your supervisor, the people you work with. The test of your Christianity is lived out. And I've seen Christians that are so brutal with supervisors and bosses, and they think they're justified for their bitterness and their anger. Jesus is the one that said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me. And people say, that's not true. That's just too narrow. It's intolerant. There's all different ways to God. We all worship the same one. Jesus said, follow me in believer's baptism, just as I have set the example. That while I was an adult, I was baptized by immersion. We say, that, that's not true, Lord. That's not true. Man, I was baptized as an infant. Didn't even know what was going on. Didn't even know you. Couldn't even make the decision. Wasn't even aware of what was going on. Do you realize how humbling that would be? What would my mom think? What would my dad think? 
That's not true, Lord. Guess what? We'll decide what baptism looks like. Man, Jesus is one that says, if you'll confess me among men, I'll confess you to my Father. Jesus talked about living a life of sexual purity, and people today say, that's not true, Lord. We'll make that determination. We'll live with, sleep with, whoever we want, whenever we want. We'll define that. That's just way too narrow. We've evolved. I mean, after all, you created us this way. It's your fault. You're the one that gave us these desires. It's your fault. It's humbling to do like Peter did. Say, you're the Christ. You're the living God. And I will follow you. Let me ask you this morning, how about, how about for you? How about these questions? Who does the world say he is? More importantly, who do you say he is? Do you agree with the world? Or is your definition different? Because if not, you're in trouble. How has he revealed himself to you? Whether it's through this church, whether it's through his word, whether it's through a friend, whether it's through a family member. And have you responded? Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Let me ask you this morning, heads bowed, eyes closed. And the only reason we do this is so there's no distractions in this room. And let me ask you this morning... It's the most penetrating question, but it's the most important question for you to determine this morning. Is who do you say he is? Have you come to the place in your life where you've made this confession? It's really no magic words. But if you come to this place, and I'm just going to tell you, I'm so burdened for our church and I'm so burdened for many of you. And you have been prayed for. But have you come to the place in your life where you've made that confession? And you've received him and asked him to come into your life for the forgiveness of your sins.